This is 91.7, The Edge, WSUW, and I am your host, Kenny G, and you've tuned in to Stay Woke. And here at The Edge, we've partnered with UWF-TV to bring you live on The Edge, a multimedia concert series. We bring you some of the best and up-and-coming local music acts. So tune in at 8 p.m. every other Thursday for in-studio performances and interviews. It's Wednesday. It's hump day. Many people are struggling to get through the week. It's at that point where it's cold. You might be in school. You might be working. Probably in in need of a break. Me, myself included. It's so cold. And it's only supposed to get colder this weekend. And I'm just counting down today. We can have at least 40 degrees. Can we reach 40 degrees outside? So I can at least make it bearable and I got to go to class, got to go to work. Today is going to be a very special show because last week as I was at my internship, I was looking up for some show ideas and I started to Google, what do we celebrate in February? You know, they, it's always something month, National Pizza Day, National Pizza Month. It's always something. So I Googled February and I saw that it was like National Heart Month. And I was like, okay, that's nice. And so I click on something else, and it was like the Wikipedia page, and it has like Black History Month. <laughs> and I laughed to myself because I forgot that it was Black History Month, which, you know, it's probably weird or strange. And I'm just going to chalk it up to me just celebrating my melanated skin every day, so that's why I forgot. But it was interesting that we have all of this controversy going on about Black History Month, whether to get rid of it. That, that comes every year. And I just thought this would be a perfect show to dedicate to black history, but in a way that you've probably never heard it done before. And so here's why you need to stay woke. Dr. Yosef Ben Yakinen was an African-American writer and historian. He is known as one of the more prominent Afrocentric scholars. He earned doctoral degrees in cultural anthropology and Moorish history from the University of Havana and the University of Barcelona, Spain. He is also the author of 49 books that focus primarily on ancient Nile Valley civilizations and their impact on Western cultures. So here's Dr. Ben, his own words, talking about the things that the Greeks learned from Africans, such as the use of pie and other like scholarly inventions that are still being taught today. But the history books have conveniently left these facts out that the Greeks got them from the Africans. And so let's hear Dr. Ben as I play a little bit of what he had to say as he was speaking to some people. And as I said before, it was not the first. The earliest of the Greeks were trained in a place called the Grand, the subordinate lodge of Croton and Delphi. Subordinate lodges of the Grand Lodge in a place called Waset, which the Greeks later changed to Thebes or Thebes. The current Arabs change it to Luxor. But did you get that in Greek philosophy? Did you get it in Greek history or European history? None whatsoever. And how did you get Hannibal, Hannibal Barker and his father, Hasdrubal Barker, and his brother and his father rather Hamalkar, his brother Hasdrubal. How did you receive it in the educational system? How did the textbook show it? It showed it as they were not Africans. What they said is some Phoenicians came from Phoenicia and 
Carthalus, which they later called Carthage, was in fact a Phoenician country. Eighty people came from Phoenicia with a woman named Elisa, which Virgil called Dido or Dido in his little play about it. And those 80 changed all the Africans into Phoenicians. And thus we are taught that the Africans of Carthalus were in fact Caucasians. It's all right when they taught me in, in school in Puerto Rico, I didn't know any difference. I was born in Ethiopia, grew up in Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands, Cuba, and Brazil. So when they were teaching me that at the University of Puerto Rico, I knew no, no difference, and so it went down all right. But I accidentally went to Morocco, accidentally, and find that what I had been taught in school was nothing but a pack of lies. Because I then went into the temple, I then went into the museum and found that it was totally different, but then I went on to Italy in the Medici Museum, the Museum of Alessandro de Medici, only to find that Alessandro was an African born in Italy. And no one had told me up to then that there were Roman emperors from Africa, such as Honorius and Septimus Severus and his son Caracalla. No one had took time, had taken time to explain to me anything about the Greeks coming to Egypt and to Nubia and to Ethiopia, depending on who they were, to receive their earliest education, those who had not gone to a little colony, a little enclave in what was then called Lebus, now called Libya, to receive their first glimpse into education taught by Africans. Well, having gone the route of civil engineering and with a bachelor's and then uh, masters in architectural engineering, you would think that I should be satisfied at that point. But I couldn't be satisfied because the fire had burnt. You see, I, had, I was the admirer of two particular people at that time. One called Booker T. Washington, one called Marcus Garvey. In the reverse, Garvey first and then Washington. Garvey because in my household, Garvey was the word next to the deity. And the relationship between Garvey and Booker T had become so close that I too followed the teachings and philosophical concept of the late Honorable Booker T. Washington. But within that philosophy was something else both men always taught the integrity of the individual and the integrity of the individual refused in my case to accept lies such as Benny Goodman is the king of swing and Duke Ellington must have been the emperor of swing Chick Webb having taught Jean Crooker 
I was told that Gene Krupa is the best on the drum, but he went to Chick Webb to get to be the best on the drum. I don't know if you know Chick Webb, you know Ella Fitzgerald. That's Chick taught her. I just throw that in to show you that the lie doesn't stop in ancient time. It continues up to today as truth. And so in my further examination, I was dealing with 3.14. All of you here in engineering knows what it's supposed to symbolize. They say it's five. And I was taught that it came from the Greeks. And you know, I believed it. What else could I do? The teacher told me. And then when I went to Ethiopia and to Egypt and to Nubia, in the ancient records of the ancient Africans of the Nile, the Nile Valley Africans, there was pie being used 2,000 years before there was such a place as Greece. The first writer of Greece that brought Greece into civilization because they said the demarcation between uncivilized and civilized have to do with the time when you start writing history, they call it, prehistoric and historic. And Homer is the Greek first writer. And Homer said that even the concept of God, Zeus and Apollo came from Ethiopia. So when you get in the Greek fraternities and sororities, just remember what Homer said. You must have dealt, you must have dealt with the Iliad and the Odyssey by now. But again, I understand. You see, you have been taught by Alex Haley and others that your history started in the slave trade. But they don't even tell you how the slave trade started. They blame you for enslaving yourself. They say your ancestors sold you up. Nice statement. So I asked the guy, what country, what was the name of the king? Oh, don't worry about that, they sold you out. As if I don't know that the slave trade started with the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church by the name of Martin V and Reverend Bartholomew de Las Casas on the island of Hispaniola, now called Haiti and Santo Domingo. You see, you weren't made, you were, nobody told you it's time to get sorry, to feel bad when some Haitians were being slaughtered on the coast of Florida. That's what it is. If you send a people back to sea, on the condition where they were, that's genocide. But you see, you didn't feel anything because you weren't taught to realize that the Haitians are your brothers and sisters because you don't know that the first Africans to be brought in slavery was not taken from Africa, but from Spain and carried to Haiti, then called Hispaniola in 1506 under the aegis of the Pope of the Roman Church and Bartolomeu de las Casas. But how did you get in Spain? That was 1506. But you went into Spain, which was then called Iberia, Spain and, and, and Portugal and southern France, as conquerors yourself 
in 711 under the leadership of Tariq for whom the rock of Gibraltar is now named Gibraltar. Nothing in your education, because there's nothing in your textbooks about any of this. So you'll have to go to Spain. Luckily, at the University of Barcelona, where I attended for two years, there are these documents and I had never known anything about them. I hadn't known that the Africans called Moors had ruled Spain from 711 until 1485. The last of them losing power at a place called Granada. That was Dr. Ben Yakinen. As I said, he was a prominent Afrocentric scholar. And the first time, not just thinking about some of the things he said, the first time I heard about Egyptians being the founder of many mathematical equations and discoveries was back in 2013 when I listened to a speaker, Ashra Kwesi, and he takes trips to the now. He takes about 30 to 40 students a couple of different years. He takes them on a trip to the Nile and they go through all of these Egypt artifacts, Egyptian artifacts, and they examine them and they do videos and he instructs them on what they're looking at. And I was just blown away that this was the first time I had ever seen pictures or heard stories about what has been copied and what we know as American and British culture today. The Hippocratic Oath and certain symbols, the symbol of the eagle, looks very familiar to what was already carved on Egyptian pyramids and other Egyptian sculptures. And here I am, a 22-year-old, 23-year-old, just now hearing about Egyptian culture and the things that they've done in the past and contributed. And I just couldn't believe that this, this has not been included in the history books. And so if you want to do your own research, just type in Dr. Ben, and I'm sure it'll pull up. He has, he's considered, I guess, controversial because of the things that he's saying so you're going to find out the good things, and you're also going to find out why people think he's controversial as well. Second person I want to highlight today, Dr. Ivan Van Sertima. He was educated at the School of Oriental and African Studies, London University, and the Rutgers Graduate School and holds degrees in African Studies and Anthropology. He is the author of They Came Before Columbus, The African Presence in Ancient America, which I'm currently reading it's pretty heavy, it's not, one, not an easy read. You have to go through very slowly what he's trying to tell you, but it's a pretty good book. And so here's Dr. Sertima explaining the importance of telling history in a factual manner. I learned earlier from sources in the New York Times that when the review was sent into the New York Times, the New York Times was amazed by the fact that it had not a single argument against me. They had to return it to the critic and say, apart from the vituperation, could you make a point or two that shows that it is a myth? And he made the point that I had mixed up step pyramids with true pyramids, which in fact is not true because they have x-rayed the pyramids and they have found steps inside of the true pyramids. In other words, the step remains at the core of the structure. But that is not what amazed me so much. 
What amazed me is that the New York Times had gone over all the American reviewers, people who had done serious work in American prehistory, people who had done serious work in Africa, to pick a man who had never done work in either field. A man who for the last 10 years before he wrote this review was writing novels in the genre of Ed Ellery Queen, who had never visited these archaeological sites and was merely a Britisher attacking a colonial. This is at the root of a great deal of things. Because the colonization of man in the Americas and in Africa does not stop with slavery or second-class citizenship. We are not speaking of these bonds which we appear to have broken. We are speaking of chains which we, from which we are not yet free. We are speaking of the colonization of the imagination. And it became clear to me after looking at those attacks and after being involved in that controversy for many years, it became clear to me how absolutely vital it was that we should have a new school of historians. How vitally necessary it was that we should have a forum through which we could express through which we could reveal the facts of history. We have that school today. It is in its beginnings, but it is making a tremendous impact. Here in the audience today, we have Renoko Rashidi, for example, who co-edited with, co with me African Presence in Early Asia. He is part of that school. We have begun something which will take us through this century into the other century. And let me make it quite clear. We are not just interested in excavating dead facts. We are interested in bringing into the mainstream of American consciousness and the consciousness of the world things that revise, that challenge, that change in a substantial and revolutionary way the thinking and feeling of centuries. It is only in that way that history becomes alive and significant. History is not a dead thing. It is not the mere accumulation of facts. It is the creation of a different vision, a different way of seeing, thinking and feeling. People say, why do we want to know what Africans did a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago? It doesn't matter. It matters. Because what happened 10,000 years ago or 10 minutes ago occupies the same room in consciousness. What happened in history or what we believe happened in history affects the way we think. It affects our prejudices, our reflexes, our conceptions of ourselves, the way people conceive of us, the way we treat ourselves, the way we are treated by others. History, therefore, has a lot to do with the living present. No man can be truly released from the past until he understands the past. And no man can be released the full potential of man for work in the living present that leads him into a new future cannot be activated until he has this very alert, alive and discriminating relationship and connection with the past. That is why we speak of these things today. I was particularly aware from the kinds of criticisms that fell upon me 
that we really, very few of us have any idea of what the Africans were involved with before slavery. All of us know, for example, the familiar story of slavery in the Americas. But few of us know what an enormous trauma, what a catastrophe struck Africa itself. So that thousands and thousands of books have been written about Africa and Africans that gives us not a clue of the complexity, the potential, the capacity of Africans at the time they were struck down, at the time their continent was split and partitioned and colonized. It is only within the last few years that archaeologists have given us the faintest glimpse of the lineaments of an African science, its technology. We discovered, for example, in 1978, two of our professors, Schmidt and Avery of Brown University, discovered Africans were smelting steel 1,500 to 2,000 years ago. In that time, there was the smelting of steel in the world, but nobody, no country, no people on earth achieved the extraordinary technological complexity of the Africans. The American team showed that the Africans were smelting steel, the finest bloom of carbon steel in the world, in an industrial site along the lakes in Tanzania, East Africa. That they were smelting it to temperatures of 1850 degrees centigrade. No machine until the end of the 19th century ever achieved that temperature. The highest ever achieved in the world before the Africans was 1,620 degrees centigrade in a second century Roman blast furnace. And even when George Wilhelm Semenz, the German scientist, discovered a process for smelting steel on a mass scale, the European process in the mid-19th century was not as advanced as the African process at least 1,500 years earlier. Because the European process produced steel in two crude stages, the Africans did it in a single stage through the crystallization of iron involving a semiconductor technology unknown until the 20th century. And they found further that the Africans were doing all this using less fuel. We usually assume Africa is full of jungles, great forests and woodlands, etc. And therefore they always had this forest reserve. The Africans were actually forced into fuel-saving technology in this industrial site very early because Africa in fact, and I will repeat this until it sinks into your head, Africa has less jungle than any other continent comparable with its land space. Africa has less jungle than any other continent comparable with its land space. If you were to take two Europes and put it in Africa, which you can, there is more woodland and forest in two Europes than in Africa, the comparable land space. I grew up in a jungle. I was born in the city of Georgetown, but I spent 14 years in deep jungle. And I'm not talking about little bush. I'm talking about real jungle. The jungle you see in Raiders of the Lost Ark. The deep South American rainforest. And I don't know of any African who has spent that much time in the jungle. There is not a single high culture, not a single civilization in Africa that grew up in the jungle. 
whether it is the Ethiopian civilization or the classical Egyptian civilization or the Tichit in North Africa or the Afro-Phoenician civilization of Carthage or Ghana, Mali or Songhai in West Africa or Monomotapa, the seat of an empire in Southern Africa, not one. There are whole empires in Africa like medieval Mali, for example, which the Arabs said dwarfed the Holy Roman Empire, which contained as much space as all the states of Western Europe put together, and there was not a single slice of jungle in that empire. The Africans there traded with other Africans in the jungle, but they would not advance into the jungle. They were terrified of it. The reason why we have so many thousands of books on African jungle, apart from Tarzan, the reason why we have so many books on Africans in the jungle or little primitives or rural tribesmen on scratching a living on the edge or periphery of civilization is because the core and center of African civilizations receded into shadow while its broken bones were put on spectacular display. Therefore, it is only within recent time that we are finding the steel smelting machine, only within recent time that we are finding that Africans were involved in complex astronomy. Before I speak about their astronomy, their medicine, their scripts, their metallurgy and other aspects of their science, let me say something about how this picture came about. Africa literally disintegrated under centuries of onslaught from without. Not only America, and mo most of us have no idea of what America was. When I was growing up as a boy, I grew up among primitive Native Americans. I had no idea then, as I grew up amongst them, that behind me lay the heights of Marco Pico, a city carved out of sheer rock, calling for technological ingenuity unparalleled in the world. I had no idea of my cousins in Mexico. It was Cortez, not Columbus, who gave us some idea of the technological complexity of the heartland of America. Columbus wandered among the primitives on the edge of America. Columbus never once, never once set his foot on the American continent. On his third voyage, on August the 7th, 1498, three of his ships landed in South America. He did not come off the ship. He said he had arthritis. Did not come off the ship. Sent the landing party aboard and a few days later when he got into the Caribbean he reported back on a mailboat to Spain that South America was an island just as the landmass he had struck was an island and just as he had reported earlier that Cuba was the continent. Just as he reported earlier that he was in India. <laughs> Just as we reported earlier that the people were being called Caribs when in fact Carib comes from Caraib, which means foreigner, they were calling the Spanish Caraib. These clowns who knew nothing about linguistics or geography or had no advanced science stumbled into the Caribbean looking for gold, thinking they were in Asia. Columbus never saw the complexity of the Americans. It was Cortez the first modern European of that Columbus era who reported on what he saw in the core and heartland and center of American civilization. And Cortez said, and I quote him, when I saw their pyramids, 
and their palaces and their temples and their floating gardens that Chinampas, the most advanced agricultural technique then in the world known only in medieval Ghana and Mexico and their aqueducts and their reservoirs and their zoos and their running baths there were very few running baths then in Europe he said I have not seen its like anywhere but what do we know of the American Indian? the edge, the periphery, the savages, the primitives I grow up, I come to the city, I see movies for the first time what do I see? I see these strange half-naked savages running about woo -woo 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 -woo. And there is John Wayne and Ronald Reagan picking them off from the shadow. Those are the images. And it affects the colonized people throughout the world. Because it's one thing to invade. All people have invaded or been invaded. This is another thing to wipe out the memory of their history until they themselves not only forget, but begin to preach and to propagate the same fictions about themselves that others have propagated. And when new facts emerge, and they're irrefutable, you find not only the Eurocentrics who will contest with you, but even those people who should know better, or at least attempt to know better, because they shouldn't know better, they're part of this civilization, they're part of its falsehood that should at least attempt to revise their conceptions they become involved in it what lay at the center of African civilizations before its disintegration is only now being discovered as I say two years ago one of our earth satellites spinning around this planet sent down radar beams into Africa 16 feet below the African earth and found the traces of ancient rivers here at The Edge, we are celebrating black history in a bit of a different way. I'm highlighting some people, some heroes that you might not have ever heard of before. And right there, you were just listening to Dr. Ivan Van Sertima. As I said, he was educated at London University and in Rutgers Graduate School, and he has many degrees, including African Studies and Anthropology. And he talked about the history that, you know, Africans had in astronomy and different things that were just now being found out as we move along and being, being able to discover and send people out that really want to get to the crux of studying different languages and different meanings. My last person that I want to highlight just recently passed January 2nd. She was 80 years old. I had never heard of her before until I read, I believe it was like a Twitter post, and she was also prolific in the things that she studied. Her name was Dr. Frances Cress Wilson. She was a renowned psychiatrist, author of the 1991 work, The Isis Papers, The Keys to the Colors, which I just recently finished. And I found it to be fascinating and I'm sure discussion worthy. She received her bachelor's degree from Antioch College. She's a native of Chicago, Illinois, my hometown and her MD from the Howard University College of Medicines. She also studied the origins of white supremacy from a psychological and biological perspective and was a proponent of the melanin theory, which advocates black superiority due to a higher concentration of melanin in the skin of people of African descent. So right now I'm going to play Dr. Wilson's debating 
William Shockley in 1974 on Tony Brown's Black Journal. Shockley, a noted scientist, embarked upon the mission of proving to the world that black people are genetically inferior without, I might add, the benefit of any formal background in genetics. He became front page news and won headlines with his controversial views. On campus after campus, unrest followed his every visit. My position then and now is that if a supremacist cannot be rationally debated, perhaps he has a point. After the debate, you're now going to see Dr. Shockley went back into oblivion. I don't claim that the 1973 interview did it alone, but I am of the opinion that it helped. I'm Tony Brown. In a moment, racial superiority with Dr. William Shockley. Tony Brown's journal is brought to you by Pepsi and its bottlers. This program is part of Pepsi-Cola's continuing support of your community's cultural, educational, and business interests. We have two very prominent educators, scholars, on Black Journal tonight, and we feel that it is important to defend the First Amendment rights of all Americans. Dr. William Shockley, one of our guests, has had quite a difficult time speaking at some universities, and particularly some black college students do not agree with his theories. On Black Journal, we feel that Dr. Shockley's rights in the First Amendment area are parallel to black people's rights, that is, that Dr. Shockley must have a platform for his views if black people are to have a platform for their views. Dr. Francis Welsing, on the other side, has difficulty in expressing her views on legitimate mass media outlets because many whites do not agree with her theory of genetics. Now let's find out what the controversy is about. Dr. Shockley, please give us the benefit, basically, of what your theory is. My uh, principal point, uh, Mr. Brown, is uh, not so much a theory of black-white differences, but is summed up in one word, which is the theme of my appearance on your program and my efforts, and the word is dysgenics. And dysgenics means effectively downbreeding, retrogressive evolution. And I fear that this is worst for the black community, and I particularly welcome an opportunity to appear on Black Journal just for these reasons. And let me say also that when I first met Dr. Welsing, it was not black students who were disrupting, but white students. And Dr. Welsing made a very sincere and I thought extremely effective effort, a well-planned effort. It was not effective with these white students at Staten Island Community College, so I would have a chance to speak. In fact, I think they prevented her from saying what she wanted to say when she was trying to uh, gain me a platform. So my main theme is that we have problems that we should face and we should look at connected with dysgenics. And I welcome any opportunity I have to bring this out so that people can look at it and worry about it. Dr. Shockley, you are accused of having a theory uh, that is uh, a racist, a white racist theory. How do you respond to that? Well, I respond to that by saying that I've considered whether or not I am a racist. Racist is an epithet that used to damage my self-esteem, but it doesn't anymore. I feel it's untrue. If you look in the dictionary as to what racist means, it means uh, emotional feelings, irrational feelings associated with fear and hate. If I really had those, I don't think I would be here this evening. I feel that uh, what I'm engaged in is a demand for diagnosis. And I'd like to say some more about this chart, which we'll come to probably later, which shows 
the disproportionate rates of reproduction for the least effective elements of the black community. I'd like to say more about that than we should in just this brief introduction. But uh, I think there is another word that better describes what I'm involved in, and that word is raceology, which means a scientific analysis of racial differences. And I uh, basically, I have a faith that reason is a good thing, and I feel, uh, as you do about the First Amendment, but maybe with a slightly different emphasis. I think the really important thing about the First Amendment is it is a way of guaranteeing a high likelihood the truth will emerge as a result of conflict, conflicting ideas being expressed, and I have a thesis and a basic belief the truth is a good thing and will be of benefit to man. Thank you. Dr. Francis Welsing, give us the benefit of your theory, please. Well, my theory was, I wrote the paper in 1969, I wrote a paper called The Crest Theory of Color Confrontation and Racism. And the sole reason behind writing that paper was an attempt to understand the behavior of white people in relationship to all people of color, every place in the world, black, brown, red, and yellow people. And the paper was presented to the Americans at the National Medical Association, the section on psychiatry in neurology, because back in 1969, uh, the black caucus in the American Psychiatric Association, we had said that racism, and when we talk about racism, we're talking about the white supremacy behavior of white people that racism was the number one mental health problem in the nation and it was the number one cause of other mental health problems. And I wanted to understand what this thing of racism really is all about because it's the kind of, it is the thing that has caused woe and misery and suffering for the vast majority of the people on this planet that are classified as non-white. And in my attempt to understand why the necessity of white people to keep saying that white is superior and that the condition of non-white is inferior. And the more I thought about it, in conjunction with uh, an idea that a friend of mine had that racism was a worldwide behavioral system for the maintenance of white supremacy by a small minority of people. I put those ideas together with what we know about genetics, what we know about the condition of skin whiteness itself. The condition of skin whiteness is the genetic inability to produce skin pigment called melanin. This is a genetic recessive trait. It is a genetic deficiency state, not as defined by Francis Welsing, but defined by geneticists and dermatologists that the inability to produce the skin pigment of melanin or melanin pigment is described as albinism. And I think that white people, even though most white people are not consciously understanding their problem in genetics. They are certainly aware that they are genetically dominated by people of color. That's why it was a statement, one, one drop of black blood makes you black, because people of color have the genetic capacity to annihilate white people. And so unless white people control the reproductivity of people of color, then we have, we can postulate that perhaps one day there won't be any white people. And I think that the very survival of white people necessitates that they project genetic inferiority on people of color because it is they who really are aware that they are genetic recessive and perhaps genetically inferior to people of color. And I am not saying this to 
to call uh, the condition of skin whiteness to say, well, no, white people are inferior. I'm not saying it for that purpose, but I think that it is of prime importance for the majority of people in the world to understand why it is that white people have to, the effective majority, large numbers of white people, have to move in a hostile and an aggressive way against people of color and have to constantly focus on it's you who's genetically inferior because they realize that there's something wrong with their genetic status. Now, May I what? take a call? Oh, sure, All right. please. Let, let me, uh, so that, because uh, we have a number of calls, and we'll see what the public wants to find That's out so. also. Just one second. Hello, go ahead, please. You're on Black Journal. Yes, thank you. I would, I would like to ask the question, why does the doctor feel that his theory, Dr. Shockley, why does, why does you feel that your theory is correct? Well, let me say that's a, um, a long question. Let me point out one aspect. Uh, I mean, it's a, a question that calls for a very long answer. Uh, I think I might just at this point say that in a time like one hour, we may expose a problem and encourage thinking about it, and this is a very valuable thing. But to uh, cover either Dr. Welsing's views or mine, and let me say here are just to show that these things exist, is a pamphlet that she was good enough to give me some time ago. Uh, they this one's upside the, down. Well, that one's upside down. Yeah, Thank you. Right. <laughs> um, and this is uh, one of my own. It's actually a collection of a, de of a debate. The imperative of ethnic education is yours. Uh, this is the issue of the journal. Mine was, uh, the title of my uh, paper is somewhat different from this, but I want to say uh, that speaking for myself, if people would like to write to me at Stanford University, I have a post box there, post box S, which is the same as Shockley and Stanford. I will try to supply more information, and I'm sure Dr. Welsing will say what she can do about making, uh, telling people how to reach her pamphlet. Okay. But now let me say this chart that I held up a moment ago is very important in respect to this question of why I think uh, there may be what proves a basic difference. But I'm going to say that if there were not a basic difference and uh, intellectual capacity in the past, there probably will be a basic difference between black and white intellectual capacity in the future simply because of the reproduction patterns. And these are Census Bureau data, and this is the most threatening aspect. And what it indicates is that for the black women of the lowest intellectual social class, uh, which are rural farm women, generally the education is least, the average number of children is 5.4. For women with um, <clears throat> college degrees, it's 1.9. And um, so this is definitely unfavorable. It is, it is reproducing far more at the bottom end and not enough to keep even at the top end. Dr. Shockley, can for you whites, explain? Uh, let me just finish uh -huh. this. For whites, the numbers are also in this direction, but nowhere nearly as, uh, as severe. Dr. Shockley, I think that uh, in all fairness, you should explain to the audience why it is that you have, first of all, you have a very large segment of the black population who are uh, on farms, who are deprived in cities. Why don't you explain at the time that you're showing this, why, who is keeping black people in a situation like they're in? I mean, it could be, you could turn it around the other way where you could have very large numbers of black people who are exposed to educational opportunities like white people who are exposed to housing, who are exposed, exposed to health facilities. Why don't you explain that at the same time that you put well, figures I'm, like I'm that? I'm sure you would explain it. Uh, no, but 
but Dr. I think Welsing, it's important but, in uh, answering... One must say time. first things first. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, you've raised the basic question there, and that is whether the disadvantages are primarily a lack of opportunity or whether they are primarily a basic genetic difference. And let me mention one thing, which is that in certain areas there is no doubt about black superiority. Blacks are superior in visual acuity, and they're superior in a systematic way. Now, I, uh, I don't expect that people will understand the details of this, but I simply want to show that quantitative work can be done. This happens to be a research job of my own. And what it shows, because these points that you see here lie on a, on a line, which is not the, the central line, but they lie systematically on a line, what it says is that so far as visual acuity is concerned, blacks are systematically better than whites. It's as if their bell-shaped curve, their distribution curve, were pushed upwards compared to whites for visual acuity, or at least for the avoidance of bad eyesight, such that if the same shift occurred for IQ, it would mean that the average IQ distribution would be up by nine points rather than down by about 15 points, which is the typical average. Dr. Shockley, visual acuity is probably something that the system of white supremacy has not necessarily seen the need to affect the environment that black people are in so that it will alter the fact that they have visual acuity that is superior to whites. The fact of visual acuity is not attacked in the same way as educational opportunity and job performance is attacked. And I think but that this it's, is... It's evidence for a genetic difference, in Well, my you see opinion. what I'm saying? There might be many, many more genetic right. differences where people of color Fine. appear superior. If I may, we have a number of people and we'd like to get to as many as possible. If you could make your answers, as, not to compromise your explanation, <laughs> right. but if you could make your answers as succinct, I would appreciate it because we'd like to okay. involve the public as much as we can. One moment, please. Your unbacked journal, go ahead, please. Yes, I was wondering if Dr. Shaw could explain the basic difference between his, the course he is taking in explaining white supremacy and the course that Hitler took in, in, uh, during the Nazism reign. Thank you. Well, there are enormous differences. In fact, uh, the lesson to be learned from Nazi history is frequently very misunderstood. And it is a lesson which Mr. Brown has told us about earlier. It's the First Amendment. It's not that eugenics is intolerable. Actually, the eugenic programs, which are the opposite of dysgenics, uh, eugenic programs uh, are not inconceivable. They're not inhumane. Denmark has been carrying out programs with strong eugenic implications for maybe 30 years. And it's important to note that since World War II, Denmark's per capita homicide rate dropped and is now approximately 120th. That is, the number of deaths of probability being killed in a year by, uh, by a violent homicide is roughly, oh, the order of 100 times less for young Danes than it is for young American blacks. Can I? Now, the, uh, uh, but the lesson, let me say, what uh, the, the lesson of Nazi history we have in this country, and it will protect us. It's just the thing that makes this program possible. The First Amendment, which allows freedom of speech. If one believes that is not the right answer, then one has to be one of the most anti-German racists that can be. If one believes that the German people would have tolerated the concentration camps and the gas chambers, if news media 
like uh, the programs that Mr. Brown is setting on, if those people were willing to bring uh, discordant views out into the open, I don't believe the concentration camps and the gas chambers could have continued to exist in Germany. I'd like to comment because I'd like to say that I don't think that there's a major difference between what Dr. Shockley is doing. I don't think that Dr. Shockley is fully aware of what he is doing and why he is doing what he's doing. But the long-range implications of what he is doing are no different than the propaganda campaign that Hitler and his Nazi unit carried on in Germany that ended up eliminating uh, six million Jewish people. Now what is most interesting is that Hitler said the very same thing. He said, number one, that the Jews were genetically inferior to the Aryans. Number two, he was aware that the Semites had genetically dominant material uh, genetic material to the Aryans. And if we begin to understand the way that people who were in Europe at the time that the Semites arrived from Africa, when the Semites arrived in Europe from Africa, they were people who had substantial amounts of color and who had very kinky hair because they were from the continent of Africa. And the Europeans, the white people who were there had a reaction, a color reaction to the Semites that is no different than the reaction and the concern on the part of people who are white in this area of the world or any other area of the world to people who, are, who have the genetic capacity to produce color, who can genetically annihilate their position. And I think it's very, very important, even though Dr. Shockley, I am convinced that Dr. Shockley believes that he is uh, perhaps elevating science with all of his charts and all of his figures, but he doesn't understand the things that propel him as a white individual in a social system that has programmed him throughout his life and programmed large numbers of people like him to focus on the genetics of people of color in such a way as to destroy people of color. I would like to ask a question and Dr. Shockley, if you could answer it, uh, yes or no, I would appreciate it. Do you believe that black people are inferior in intelligence because of their heredity? I have a standard statement. It is not yes or no. It's memorized. I say at the same time every, every time, I think. What I say is this. My research leads me, and it's a tragic conclusion, really. Uh, my research leads me inescapably to the opinion that the major cause of the American Negro's intellectual and social deficits is hereditary and racially genetic in origin, and thus not remediable to a major degree by practical improvements in environment. All right. If you believe that uh, the position relatively of black Americans to white Americans is based on a genetic inferiority, and I will, I will accept the responsibility for that word, uh, then what do you see as the solution to the problem? Well, I see the first uh, aspect of this is to prevent the problem from becoming worse by dysgenics. This first word that Would you I, uh, that translate I dysgenics what, what for I, me and the audience? Uh, what Would I that be sterilization? Is, is, no. Dysgenics, you see, means what that other chart I showed you says. Should blacks, the least effective element. Should blacks be sterilized? Uh, no. I have a... Uh, this but if blacks gets are a problem and we, and we do not allow... This is inhumane. And Dr. I think Shockley one can find more humane solutions to this. Well, then, then how would, then, then, then. I would propose something in which one of the key clauses, phrases, is regardless of sex, race, or welfare status. And this is the proposal. I call it a thinking exercise. It's mentioned in that pamphlet that I showed that you can obtain. Um, 
and it goes this way, that you would offer a bonus to everyone to be sterilized. Now, we know we have a population explosion problem. We know that in India that bonuses in the form of transistor radios would, would are offered this bonus to people. Be, or, would this bonus be directed to black people specifically, more Mr. than white? Mr. Brown, Mr. Brown, what did I say just a moment ago? I said, regardless of sex, race, or welfare status. Now there is a group. Not to shock there is a uh, group. That's what of, I say. Uh, there is a group of white people to whom this offer this, should be made. Also, absolutely. Now what, what the offer will, the offer is based. The offer is based upon the best estimates, best scientific estimates that one can have of any genetically carried disabilities. Now there are some I think that any humane person would have no doubt about. And uh, Dr. Welsing talked about dominant and recessive genes. I want to point out that sometimes a dominant gene can be a very bad thing, and it is a very bad thing for color. a neurological disease called <coughs> Huntington's chorea, which is something which like is multiple sclerosis. Which is more in white people than black people. That is correct. And mm -hmm. I think that one should offer a large bonus for anyone who might be Dr. potentially Shockley. carrying Huntington's chorea. Dr. Shockley, Beyond this, it goes on with some other factors in this, Dr. Welsing wishes are you, to speak. Are you aware that white people have more genetic diseases that affect their nervous system than people of color, than black people? I wouldn't be at all surprised. And I think now, blacks would you have, suggest, uh, would you suggest that problems. all of these, would you suggest that all of these white people who are carrying these defective genes, you know, whose families may carry these defective genes, that they be examined and it would be suggested to them that they be sterilized? Would you suggest this? Yes, I think I would, probably, in general. Go ahead, your own black journal, please. Uh, what we know about ancient black civilizations, how can American blacks suddenly be genetically regressive? Thank you. Let me, let me just say this. What is very interesting is um, in the study of biology, uh, biologists who have studied evolution, one of the very interesting things that they say is that the more functional skin pigment cells in the animal kingdom, the higher you are on the scale of phylogenetic ascension. In other words, nature in the course of evolution went to its highest state when it produced a cell that could produce pigment and that we were sliding backwards. The mutation to albinism is a step backwards in the, in the scale of evolution. Are you aware of that, Dr. Shockley? No, I'm not aware of that uh, particular one. I am aware of another basic genetic difference, and that is that the rate of maturation of a neurological system gets uh, longer and longer the more advanced the animal is. And there is, that is one of the items on the racial difference, that the neurological development of blacks is faster than whites. Black ba babies walk on the average a month earlier than white babies. And the period and of uh, gestation... And black people are much more creative also than uh, Dr. Wells, uh, Shockley, correct me uh, if I'm incorrect. Uh, didn't the Giselle schedule, which tested the intelligence of children, make a correlative, a correlative between intelligence and walking early? Yes. And I would think it probably would have been negative. No, no, it, no, it was not. It was positive. Well, the, uh, there were the motor skills on the Giselle schedule indicated that earlier precocious walking children, there was a correlation between that and high intelligence. This may be true. Uh, it might be true within a group. I'm not sure of that. Well, maybe I, that, I know that yeah. there is a correlation in terms of... Uh, things earlier than walking in this at the six-month stage uh, Nancy Bailey at Berkeley has established that uh, white children who come from the most advanced families and who later when they become older are out of the top at the first six months they are relatively retarded compared to children who are uh, from families uh, right. of less accomplishment and who don't go as far but this uh, so there are a, a number of these things certainly right. to be brought in Fine. but this uh, this uh, Giselle this schedule is a very authentic accepted institutional 
uh, psychological experience. And so is the Nancy Bailey early attestant. I'd like to take another okay, call. Back here on Stay Woke, like I said earlier, we are highlighting some melanated heroes that you've probably never heard of. And if you've been with me throughout the entire show, you can probably see why you have never heard of these individuals as they're usually speaking up against the white supremacist system and uncovering truths that have been left out of the history books intent on teaching a skewed version of America and other civilizations to the youth. And so what may be controversial to some or truth to others, people tend to stay away from others that are talking about things that may cause controversy at the dinner table that people may not agree with. And so, but I think it's still important to highlight these individuals in order for you to be educated on every facet and everything that deals with history, deals with Egyptian history, African history, American history. And so look up Dr. Yosef Ben Yakinen, Dr. Francis Cress Wilson, and Dr. Ivan Van Sertima. And those are only three that I chose to highlight. You can go and do your research for even more. As I quote Asada Shakur, no one is going to teach no one is going to give you the education you need to overthrow them. Nobody is going to teach you your true history, teach you your true heroes, if they know that that knowledge will help set you free. So before I get out of here, I found a great article titled 20 Books That Every Black Person Should Add to Their Collection. And in it were these books, The Miseducation of the Negro by Dr. Carter G. Woodson, Stolen Legacy by George G.M. James, and Christopher Columbus and the African Holocaust by Dr. John Herrick Clark. And of course, you know, it was a long list, 20, 20 books on there. And so if you have read any of these books or you want to see the entire list, go to my Facebook page, facebook.com backslash Black Radio 11 or Twitter at Servant Christ 11. Let me know what you think about the books or if you're interested in reading some of the books. I know I'm going to look up some of the books on the list. Like I said earlier, I've already read Dr. Francis Cress Wilson, and I thought it was interesting. I thought it deserved its own book club to discuss. I'm sure there are plenty of people that disagree with it, that have never heard of some of the things that she was presenting in her book. As always, make yesterday jealous by working harder today and give love even the darkest times. It's Black History Month. It's hip-hop hump day, everybody. It's cold. Well, at least here in Wisconsin in the Midwest, it's pretty cold. But up next, we got DJ Special K. He hasn't arrived yet, but he, he'll be here. He's on his way, and he's going to give you all the hip-hop you want to hear. So stay tuned.